You are listening to Squid and the Ultimate Leafs fan. Hello, Canada and hockey fans of the United States and Newfoundland. And an extra big hello to Canadian servicemen overseas. Well, welcome back, everybody, and happy holidays to everybody out there. I hope everybody had a great Christmas day yesterday, getting some great deals online today on Boxing Day. Here we are for part two. Hope you enjoyed part one. We I listened again. I got to admit, it wasn't bad, Squid. I'm, you know, I'm Mike Wilson, the Ultimate Leafs fan, and joining me as always on the Squid and Ultimate Leafs fan show, Ricky Vive. Squid, I think the first one we had said, I, I'm pretty sure they must have got some few laughs out of those guys. Oh, I bet you they were laughing nonstop. And, uh, you know, it's funny because today is Boxing Day. And I remember every Boxing Day when I played for the Toronto Maple Leafs, we would be going to Detroit to play a game in Detroit every single Boxing Day. So uh, <laughs> I hope, uh, as Mike said, I hope everybody had a wonderful Christmas and, uh, and look forward to the new year. Exactly. And you missed all the Boxing Day sales, of course, and you'd be uh, traveling to Detroit. So you, yeah. you guys wasn't any good for you guys. Yeah, well, I didn't do any shopping anyway, so I didn't have to worry about so it. You were safe. <laughs> well, today we've got another lineup. Uh, you know, I think you guys are going to be your spoil last week, but I got to tell you this week, it gets just as good. We've got Dave Hansen, who tells all the tales about Slapshot movie and playing in the minors and we got Gabby Boudreaux, who is the ultimate professional lifer. We got Brad May, who's full of stories himself, along with Danny Gare. And one close to your heart, your own son, Justin, and his uh, friend, Jesse Schultz, both joining us also. A couple of guys from ECHL tell some stories. So lots, lots for people to digest this week. And I think they're going to really enjoy it as well. Oh, I believe they will. And uh, the stories that these guys are telling are, are hilarious. A lot of them are about the minor leagues, too. So I think... Anybody that can relate to the minor leagues are going to love this one. Yeah, and I, I agree. So let's turn it over to everybody to listen. Everybody, once again, enjoy our holidays, and we'll hope you guys enjoy it. We'll talk to you next week. Squid, we have a very interesting guest joining us today who played with you in Birmingham. Let's just say one of the more colorful characters that was assembled on that club who became more famous off the ice, I would have to say, in the movie Slapshot, of course, I'm referring to one of the Hanson brothers, Dave Hanson. Take us through your early years of college and even leading up to that playing hockey in Minnesota. Well, you know, Minnesota back in my day was really the, you know, the, the state of hockey in, in the United States. Uh, you know, all the way from the Iron Range on down, you know, to the Twin Cities area. Uh, you just, people in the wintertime, that's what, you know, the land of 10,000 lakes, so that's all we did, you know, was, yeah. was skate, you know either skate or drink beer. And I wasn't old enough to drink beer yet. So, so, uh, so really I, I grew up through the high school hockey, um, which, you know, almost all the kids did that played hockey came up through those ranks. And as a true freshman out of, uh, at 18 years old, I was actually thinking I was heading to New Mexico to play football, which was really my primary love, even though I played hockey most of the time. Uh, and as, as you know, things would have it, uh, Herb Brooks kind of came knocking on the door and uh, invited me to become a golfer. And there's not a kid in Minnesota that uh, doesn't dream of playing for the golfers, you know. And, and so I certainly didn't hesitate to uh, say yes. And, uh, but as things would work out there, you know, I just wasn't ready for college hockey. Uh, and I should say, as most true freshmen aren't, unless you're really the exception. And I certainly wasn't exceptional. When did it finally hit you going around the country playing pro college or wherever you were playing at the time or even any, any lower level hockey? Um, did you realize, geez, Minnesota really is a special place compared to some of these other places? 
Well, it's probably the first time when uh, I left, I went to, uh, when I signed with the Minnesota Fighting Saints, uh, we had training camp right in Minnesota, right in St. Paul. Yeah. You know, the nice hotels, the good food, this and that. And then they sent me to uh, Niagara Falls, Ontario <laughs> to finish off my minor league training camp <laughs> for Johnstown Jets. And they stuck us in the Olympia Hotel. And our wake-up call was this big old German lady with a cigarette butt hanging out of her mouth. She would slide the window open because you couldn't lock the window. She'd slide the window open, put her arm through the door, open the door, come in with the vacuum cleaner and start yelling and smoking, saying, time to get up. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, how great is Minnesota compared to this? But then I went from that, from there, and then I drove into Johnstown, which was like going into the to the bowels of hell because I'm coming in. Johnstown sat in a valley, and I'm dri- we're driving in late at night, and I'm seeing through the through the haze of a, of a smoke-filled valley these flames of smoke coming out of the chimneys of the, of the steel mills, and I'm thinking, what the heck is going on? So, yeah, that, I'd have to say that's when I really sincerely appreciated you know, exactly. what it's like to be back home. The other thing you got to remind people, again, it's that 35 to 50 genre that don't appreciate this. You guys had four guys in that club that had over 200 minutes and penalties each. I mean, you had some characters with Durbano and Bilolo and some of the other guys. I mean, first off, speak to those guys before you do. Just sort of, I want to remind people also that you also had players like Ken Linsman, Mark Napier, Paul Henderson, Frank Mahoblich, Ron Langway, Vlasov Dedemansky. So this was just, this was not just uh, roller derby on ice. Although no. sometimes it probably felt like that. Well, and I think that's, you know, guys like Paul, you know, used to probably complain to the coach, you know, come on, coach, geez, put these guys on the bench for a while so we can play some hockey. <laughs> uh, but no, we had a very good hockey team, you know, and just to, Ned Amansky, uh, you mentioned his name. Yes. Ned was on the team before I got there because actually a, a story behind that is Durbano and I were with Detroit. Ned Amansky and Tim Sheehy were with Birmingham, and we were the first interleague trade between the NHL and the WHA. So uh, Detroit traded uh, us for those guys, and, and so, you know, of course, Ned went on for a, to a Hall of Fame uh, career, and uh, and what did Durbano and Hanson do? I don't know what the hell they did. You know? So, well, now how about now any memorable games from that season? The first year you played with Birmingham with your your group that you just looked back now and you just kind of shake your head and said, "Boy, oh boy, was that that was just absolutely bizarre." Well, there's yeah, there's there's actually too many probably to talk about <laughs> uh, in the time frame of the show, but. You know, when I showed up, like I hadn't – in fact, I don't even remember Durbano in training camp at Detroit. So he may have been there, but he certainly wasn't there doing the kind of stuff that, that he was notorious for doing. But, but I can remember the first time I met Durbano in the locker room. It was actually before a game. And, uh, and he's got – he's in the back room in the stick room, and he's, he's got a rasp, and he's sharpening the end of his, his blade. And I'm just standing there watching him, and I'm trying to think to myself, what are you, what's he doing that for? So I finally said, hey, Durbo, you know, what are you doing that for? And we were playing Hartford that night with Gordy. Gordy was on Hartford. And he says, I'm sharpening up, and I'm getting ready for the old man tonight. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what am I in for? You know, so that was Durbo. I mean, and there was – I got. I can honestly say I loved the guy. I loved playing with the guy who was the greatest teammate. He was a gentleman anytime we're off the ice, but on the ice, you just had no idea what was going to happen next. Uh, but probably the most 
at least one of the most memorable things is is the night that we were in the playoffs against against uh, the Winnipeg Jets. Mm-hmm. Now the Winnipeg Jets could have played against any National Hockey League team in that in that at that year, and mm-hmm. certainly could have competed as well as beat most of them, if not all of them. Because you think about the guys they had there, you know, obvious Bobby Hall, but they had Anders Hedberg, Wolf Nielsen, Schuberg was on defense, Lindstrom. Yeah. I mean, oh, man, could they skate and they could fly. And, you know, and they had some toughness. I think that Claxton was there and, and Dave, Dave Dunn, I think was his name, was there, you know, a couple other guys. But so, you know, we played them. The, we, had, we got them in the first round of the playoffs. And, of course, you know, there's no way we were picked to even win a hockey game. And yet, uh, you know, we had a bunch of competitors um, and a lot of guys that had a lot of pride and, and were good hockey players. But, you know, I figured, well, I'm going to take the lead. I'm going to try to set the tone and uh, I'm just going to go after Bobby. Uh, you know, first shot I get, I'm going to step into him, knock him on his ass, and uh, and all the guys are going to, you know, raise their eyebrows and you know, we're going to be in this thing. So the opportunity came. I stepped into Bobby. Bobby knocked me on my ass. And uh, if I recall right, probably went in and scored a goal. So, you know, I put my stick between my legs and scooted off to the bench and sat there like a whipped dog for, you know, 30 seconds and then got pissed off. I said, well, that's not going to happen again. So there's an opportunity later in the game. And and uh, this was actually after Durbo got thrown out for some incident. So there was another opportunity in the game. So I stepped into Bobby and and I might have got my elbows up a little high. I don't really recall. But all of a sudden, Bobby and I got our gloves off, and we're fighting. We're throwing punches. And as we're going at it, you know, the Winnipeg crowd is screaming, and everybody else back then, they dropped the gloves, and they paired up. And we're going at it, and all of a sudden, you know, we stop. And I don't know why we stop. And when we stop, I'm looking right at Bobby, and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at Bobby, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, something looks really different. And I looked down on my hand, and God forbid, I realized I got Bobby Hall's wig in my hand. I ripped this friggin' <laughs> wig off his head. <laughs> and I threw the wig out away, and I'm going, geez. So I, anyhow, so I get, I get two minutes for elbowing and a five-minute major. Bobby doesn't get anything. Bobby goes in, grabs a Jaffa helmet, comes back out, and continues to play the game. Yeah. Later in the game, I'm up at a face-off line up against Bobby. I was, I was playing wing then. And I said, geez, Bobby, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't mean, I didn't know. He said, ah, kid. And if you ever heard Bobby talk, right? I mean, it's, it's still the same to this day. Ah, kid, don't worry about it. I need to get a new one anyhow. You know, so. <laughs> but I think, I could be wrong, but I think we, we might have beat him that night. Yeah. In fact, on a side note, you know, after they – eliminated us from the first round, they went on and went undefeated to win the AFCO Cup. No other team in the, in the rest of the playoffs beat them. But just to finish the story up here, so at the end of the game, you know, we go out, I think Garrett might have been a net for us. I'm skating off, and, and the legendary Bill Friday was the official. And I skate up to Bill, and I said, Bill, I says, why don't you throw me out of the game? He says, for what? I says, for, for pulling hair, for pulling Bobby's hair. I says, it's a gross misconduct. Right? Hair pulling, throw him out of game. He says, Are you kidding me? He says, If it was real hair, I might have called it, but that isn't hair. It's, it's a rug. <laughs> so the memory doesn't end there, Mike. 
<laughs> I so, like that. I said earlier in the game, Durbel gets thrown out, right? Yeah. So Durbel's in the street clothes. We're all in the locker room. We're in the showers. <laughs> and and I don't know if – Squid, I don't know if it's the old arena. If we played in the old arena, but if you remember, the bus the bus would come down underneath the arena yeah. by the locker rooms, yeah. and that's where it would sit and wait. But, the, but it was also an exit for the fans. The fans could come down that way. Yeah. You know, so all of a sudden, we're all in the shower. Sonmore comes running in. He says, guys, guys, he says, they're after Durbo. They're kicking the crap out of Durbo. And we go, what? And he says, guys, get out there. So you got Frankie Beat and me, Serge Baudouin, <laughs> and a bunch of us. We're all running all bare-ass naked with, the, with, with our dinks wiggling here and there. <laughs> and we go out in the crowd, and we're fighting bare-ass naked against all these fans. You know, so it was <laughs> – so that's one of the most memorable, you know, events of my life in the WHA. I don't know, Ricky, if I ever told you the story. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. I, in fact, maybe you don't remember it because you got knocked out. But remember when Gordy hit you with the elbow in Birmingham and knocked you out? Oh, yeah. So I'm on the bench. And I don't think I've ever – if I haven't – if I told you this, I'm going to tell you it again because I remember it vividly. I'm on the bench. And, and any time you're on the bench and Gordy's on the ice, you, you just – you were hypnotized. You just watched Gordy no matter where he was at. And he was that – type of player and and I just love the way he played I mean he's one guy that uh you're afraid of but but with me I always played hard and tough against him but I never cheap shot him you know I, I try not to cheap shot anybody but I, and I think he respected that because I'd go in a corner with him and guys would end up with bloody noses and teeth knocked out because he hit him with an elbow but I never did I mean he would let me hit him he'd let me check him but I you know but anyhow with regards to Ricky so I'm watching him. Ricky's on the ice out there, and I'm watching him, and I know, I know Rick stuck Mark earlier in the game, uh, Mark Howe. And, you know, and again, he does you know, he's a young kid, doesn't know any better. I played a year against Gordy before that. Everybody know you don't leave his kids alone. Watch, and go, watch the play go up ice. Ricky's turning one way. Gordy's, I can see Gordy watching him, turning the other way. And just as they kind of go to crisscross, bang, there goes the elbow. Knocks, knocks Vibe out flat on his back. And, go, and Gordy keeps skating up the ice. And nobody I don't know if anybody saw it other than me. And so later in the game, I'm at the face-off. I'm at the face-off across from Gordy. And, and I don't know how it happened. But there was at one time, there was this time when Gordy come up to face off and I'm looking at his stick and he had just a little slight curve at the end of a stick. And I, I'm thinking, I said, Hey Gordy, I think your sticks in the wrong hand. And he said, Oh, and he flipped over. He says, thanks. So it kind of became a running joke between us. <laughs> so, so shortly after this, after they take Rick off the ice and, and, uh, uh I'm at a face off against Gordy and I saying, wow. I said, what'd you do that for? He says, ah, I had to teach the kid to keep his head up. <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, sounds good to me, Gord. Give us a couple of moments that stuck out throughout your career in the WHA that you would just shake your head at that would never happen in the NHL, or even, even a couple of stories that may have stood out for you for how guys carried on and some of the characters are in throughout the league. Well, yeah, I, again, I go back to the Minnesota Fighting Saints. I mean, I was with that organization, I think, when they folded three times in two years <laughs> or something like that. And, <laughs> We would be getting on an airplane. I wasn't there very long, but when I was there, you know, nobody was getting any paychecks, and you know, they'd all sit and talk about, "Well, are we getting paid today?" And all of a sudden, you'd have the owner Wayne Belial come, come in and start giving everybody envelopes with cash in it, you know, so they get through another day. So, you know, 
And then, you know, and then the team folds and uh, uh, Don Niedermeyer, you remember him, uh, Squid, the, the, the equipment manager was the manager up there. The team folds and he's, he's pulling stuff out, out of the equipment room and, and selling it out of the back of his truck to people, you know, that, uh, so he could get some money if guys wanted to get equipment and that. So it was, you know, that was kind of the shaky end of things there. I mean, it was just a, a great, fun, colorful league to play in, but boy, you just didn't know, you know, what team was going to be in business and yeah. you know, what team wasn't. Uh, but boy, was it a, it was, you know, again, you go back to like Gretzky, you know, you play against Wayne Gretzky and, and talk about young pimply faced kids and skinny kids, you know, he, he's just out on the ice and you're playing against him his rookie season. You don't really know him. He's out there. And then all of a sudden, you know, you realize that you lost the game five to three and he's got four goals <laughs> and you don't know until you look at the score sheet, you know, but that, and then you get, you know, then you get, <laughs> You talk about the drinking. I mean, the drinking wasn't only in between games, but the drinking was even during the games, you know, with the Fighting Saints, you know. Yeah, guys like Shaky Walt would come in, and, and he could barely barely move, and, and Niederkorn would tighten up his skate so he could get out on the ice, and then he'd go out and he'd score a friggin' hat trick. And then he'd come in and pop a beer and say, okay, boys, let's do this all over again. You know, it was, it was quite the Wild West. Watching today's game, that hockey was like that at one point. And, you know, and I mean, I lived it, uh, played junior and, and uh, even in Birmingham in 78, 79, it was, it was very similar. Oh, uh, we even, and again, you can equate parts of it to the movie, but I mean, we won a playoff round because we literally had a bench clearing brawl and the team in warmups and the team refused to come out for, to play the game. <laughs> and it was the third game of the best of three. And so... Literally, the team forfeited. They got on their bus and they drove back to Buffalo, and we got awarded the, the win of the first round of the series. I mean, now, now be honest here. Did you guys have any idea that this thing would kind of have, not the legs that it had, but that it would be some success? We were clueless uh, to the point, Mike, where uh, other people did. Yep. Uh, but, you know, we finished the filming. Like I said, I got married literally, I think, a less than a month later I uh, went back to Minnesota was getting ready for training camp and uh, by playing beer by playing softball drinking beer and eating onion rings <laughs> <laughs> uh, but got contacted before camp you know the three of us Steve Jeff and I got contacted before camp by Universal Studios saying listen we want to sign you guys to a seven-year movie deal want to do a movie every year with you guys for the next seven years make you guys Hollywood stars, movie stars. And like, you know, like the, like the brainiacs that we are, we go, well, <laughs> no, we don't want to be movie stars. We, we're hockey players. Duh. <laughs> and so, we, you know, but we try to say, well, listen, you know, maybe if you can guarantee us that the only time you'll film is the off season, we want to interfere with our hockey season, and they couldn't do that. So, you know, we went on to, to pursue our, our uh, movie careers. But, you know, you think about it back then, you know, the only, the only way you watched the movies was either in the theater or on TV. Mm-hmm. They didn't have the VCRs, you know, That's right. you know, they didn't have cable, none of that. So it would run through the movie, through the theater uh, uh, portion of, of, of the, its life and then get stuck on the shelf. And, you know, and I think we set the record for F-bombs in a movie, so you knew it was never going to get on TV anytime through, you know, and really it wasn't until... 
the VCR was invented and, and the, video, the VHS tapes came out, that suddenly it became a, a, you know, a phenomenon. Um, I think it was like in the top three rented movies of all time at the time. And, you know, really it just hasn't stopped. One thing we forgot to talk about is the Hanson brothers with the, the cars in the hotel room and the racing oh cars. And all, like, is the, who came up with that or is that actually something you guys did or somebody did? Well, again, it falls into that category, you know, more fact and fiction. So we lived in a house just down the street from the War Memorial. I mean, literally, we walked back and forth to practice and to the games. Yep. And the house was a three-story house. We had uh, landlords on the first floor. Uh, on the second floor was the three Carlsons. And on the, on the third floor was uh, Guido Tanisi, uh, who played uh, pretty boy Billy Charlebois, and myself. And so, you know, as, as Squid will tell you, you know, that league, we called it the No Sunshine League because you spent all the time on the bus. You know, you're either sleeping on the bus, traveling on the bus, and getting off, play the games, getting back on the bus, and going again. So when we had time off, which was often a Sunday uh, in town, well, I think pretty much all the bars shut down on Sunday. So what we did in the house is we went and bought a race car set. And we went up on my floor, we put, I pushed all the furniture aside. We had a big, look. we had a living room. And we set the racetrack up. And the Carlsons and Guido and I, we would sit up there and we would race cars and, and, and drink beer. And that was our entertainment. And it got to the point where, you know, suddenly the, uh, the husbands on the team, the, the teammates who, you know, wanted to get away from their wives, they'd come over and it turned into a big, you know, every once in a while we'd have a big race car tournament going on and drinking beer. So Nancy took that obviously a step further. And we brought our toys on the road with us and played, played with our toys then. Our guest has been playing and coaching at the pro level since 1975. After an illustrious junior career, two Memorial Cups, a scoring championship, won a Calder Cup as a coach. Uh, he's a Hall of Famer in the AHL, coach of the year in the NHL, won a President's Cup. Uh, we'd be here all day going through all his uh, accomplishments. But I guess I'll just sort of preface it by saying this, that, you know, for, for somebody – who is, does something that they love and do it for their whole life and do it from cradle to grave are usually called lifers. Well, this guy joining us today, his picture would be in the dictionary besides lifer and none other than one of your ex-teammates, Bruce Gabby Boudreaux. Well, it's a really crazy story, actually. I mean, but in 1975, 76, streaking was really in. Is, yes, if, it was. For people that are of the younger uh, persuasion. And uh, there was a song, Ray Stevens sang The Streak, which was number one. Um, but I had never done it. Everybody on the team had done it except me. And we were at the Edelweiss in um, Ontario, this, place. Ontario place. And there's two bathrooms. And one was at one end, one was at the other end. And we had put in about a 10-hour shift. And I said, guys, it's time to streak. And Napier said no. Mike Kitchen said no. Then they said, okay, we'll do it. So we went from the one bathroom, and uh, there, was a one, there was a little stage where a guy had a drum and, um, a, and a couple extra instruments and everything else. And I tripped over the stage and put my head through the drum uh, on stage. <laughs> Walk, got up, started shaking my head. The drum came off. They couldn't believe it. We started laughing our heads off. Went to the other bathroom, quickly put on our clothes. But little 
did we know that there was two plain clothes cops there and uh, they caught us for indecent exposure. And the, but the funny part, well, they, the charges were dropped uh, in the end, but the funny part is we're leaving um, the police station and we're sitting there going, now nobody say anything. Our goaltender's dad is the chief of detectives. We'll get this thing all straightened around and nobody will know. We'll keep it to ourselves. This was two weeks before the draft, by the way. And um, so my dad phones me at eight o'clock in the morning and I can't tell you the expletives that were flying <laughs> from his mouth. My mom never went to work for four days and it was front page in red letters in yep. the Toronto Star. And I went, oh, my God, this is what's going on now. And uh, um, it just goes to prove, you know, stay on the uppity-up. Uh, everybody's watching. Well, the thing for the young listeners is this, and, it, and this is something you touched on, and this is the serious side of it, that you started that year uh, ranked probably in the top 15 for junior players for the draft. And by the playoffs, I think you were in the top five. And you ended yeah. up going in the third round. And, this, and the other guys that you were with – already had contracts or were all set to play. And you were the one guy that was basically exposed, so to speak, excuse the pun. Yeah. No, it, <laughs> it was crazy because we had a meeting. Um, my agent who at this time now was Alan Eagleson and me, and he said, Oakland was going to take me third. They had me number two on their list, but they were going to take me third. Then we had a team party. Uh, with the Leaf management and John McClellan, the late John McClellan, yep. said they were going to draft, the Leafs were going to draft me seventh. And, um, um, but they didn't think I'd be there. And then it was a phone draft. So nobody knew anything because the NHL was trying to hide who they were picking from the WHA at that time. Mm -hmm. And so when I went 42nd, I was like in total tears and shock and everything else. Um, but, it is what it is. I did the stupid thing and it ended up costing me. Yeah. And I said, that's, that's the whole point. And, uh, you know, today's day and age was squid. Imagine some of the guys you play with, if they were living in today, they, they wouldn't have lasted a week. Some no. of the stuff you're coming on with some of your guys. Including me. <laughs> well, I, was I was trying to be nice here. We wanted to include you. How was that for you really, like going up and down the frustration you must have felt being a prolific scorer like you were, not playing with the right guys? And... Let's take it even one step further to the, the day you got that call to come to the Maple Leafs. How did it feel? Oh, when I got the call to come to the Leafs, I was ecstatic. I mean, just uh, over the moon. It was like getting the call to coach the Washington Capitals, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. um, Which we're going to gonna be, get into. Yeah, to be in Toronto was uh, – uh, to play in Toronto was, uh, was all I ever dreamed of since I was four years old. So, I mean, it was uh, – uh, to be able to put the blue and white on and sit in the room and and uh, just get ready to play. Red Kelly was my first coach up there. And um, uh, other than having pyramids under the bench, we were doing okay. It was, it was a fun time. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, now you were blue and white all your, your, most of your career. I mean, as a young yeah. kid playing junior. And you, so you were well, well known in the city of Toronto and the hockey world and the hockey community. Uh, just take us through that day, but how you kind of touched on it, but stepping on that ice, like the difference between that Maple Leaf sweater and even played it later as a junior walking under the gardens. Just the warm-up, looking at the crowd, um, the atmosphere with the lights. I mean, uh, I still remember just skating around. I don't know if I touched the puck the first warm-up that I went in because <laughs> I was just looking and people, you know, that I'd known were waving to me and you tried not to uh, – 
to react. Uh, I remember a couple of years later, I reacted to somebody and Mike Nicklick um, wouldn't, didn't dress me, took my stuff off. He says, if you're not interested in being serious, you know, that was my way though. I was just, I was so pumped up that, that, uh, uh, that was, that was what I remember is the lights, the bright lights skating around in our half of the ice in Maple Leaf Gardens. And, and uh, that, and that was, that was the, the pinnacle for me. Well, my first goal was, was great because uh, it was a six, nothing win. And I got the sixth goal, but it was a, a pass from Randy Carlisle. <laughs> And it was a breakaway from our blue line in, and I put it over Jimmy Rutherford's shoulder. Um, I thought was I, I was so happy. Um, you know, the when we beat the Islanders in '79, uh, and I wasn't playing that game, but I remember I was in the front row. I was doing stats for uh, Roger, and I jumped over the railing. <clears throat> I thought it was only about four foot. It was about a fifteen foot drop, and I nearly <laughs> killed myself. But I couldn't wait to run down there, jump on the ice, jump on all the guys. And uh, I thought that was a tremendous moment. And But you know what? One of the best moments was um, uh, there was a game against Montreal. And I got on the ice and I and I got the puck <clears> and I, I deked out Serge Savard and I scored over Dryden's shoulder and to tie the game 2-2. And the next day they were talking about it in the paper. But my brother – was front page of the Globe and Mail because he was playing a public or a, a, a elementary school soccer game, and they had a picture of him. So it was me in the in the sports pages, and my son, uh, my brother on the on the front page uh, front page of the Globe. I always thought my, that was my dad's proudest moment, and I'll never forget the look on his face on that day. And uh, that was probably as good a moment as I'll have. Were you, you've just kind of touched on it. You went from player to coaching. Was coaching something you had in the back of the mind at some point or you thought you well, could possibly do? I was the player assistant coach um, for St. Catharines in the American League in the early 80s for mm -hmm. three years with Doug Carpenter. And then I, I went uh, to Fort Wayne. I was the player assistant coach um, in Fort Wayne for three years. And so it was definitely what I wanted to do. I didn't know what else to do. Uh, when I, in 87, I think it was after my uh, Springfield new market uh, year, my wife said, that's it. I'm not moving anymore. <laughs> so I, I tried to get a job as the uh, director of personnel for the city. And my sister-in-law made up a resume that I didn't even recognize who it was, but I was one of the last three, I was one of three guys to get interviewed. And the, the interviewer who who was retiring was the lacrosse coach in St. Catherine. So I'm sure that's the sports thing, the thing. And he came in and he said, well, I hear you do contracts. And he says, because you're going to have to do contracts with the unions and everything else. And I said, Mr. Brady, I said, after about 10 minutes, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I can't do any of this. So I'm just taking myself out of the, out of the equation. And that's when I knew it was either coaching or bust. Uh, if I wasn't going to do that, I was going to be a greeter at Walmart my whole life. So uh, uh, I got lucky in the coaching, and I haven't had to do that. Well, well now, let, me, let me touch on that, too. Yeah. Uh, somebody yeah. saying that about you uh, when you played with them. And, and at a young age, and, and I found out when I got into coaching too, and I was lucky like you were that I kind of went from playing right into coaching. And uh, mind you, I only coached for eight years and you coached a lot longer than I did. But um, 
that was one of the things I think probably that, that made you a, a good coach was the fact that you made everybody on the team feel like they were all the same, like they were all as important as the next guy. And I think that's so important as a coach and, and young coaches today that may be listening uh, have to realize that even your fourth line, your penalty killers, they need to know that their whatever they're doing and their job, their role is just as important as the guys that are scoring the goals. And that was one of the things that I kind of, I, I read a lot of uh, books before I get into coaching uh, psychology and that sort of thing. And that was one of the things in the books uh, in sports psychology books that I read. And I, it really, really helped me a lot to recognize that, you know, player A and player B have different roles, but you got to make them all feel like they're just as important as the next guy. Would you agree with that? Or I agree a hundred percent because when I was playing and I was in the NHL, uh, uh, you know, the coaches never talk to you at all. I mean, yeah. they, they talk to you to send you down. And I remember whether it was Mike Nicklick or Floyd Smith or uh, Roger would be the only person that really talked to you. But you never knew whether you were doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And I made a point of saying to myself that I was always going to make, you know, if I got to be coach, I want to make these fourth line guys feel as important as the first line guys, because that's the way you win. If you don't make them feel important, then they won't care whether you win or lose. They'll just look for their, you know, they'll hope that they have a job. But so I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, it's, it's our job as coaches to make sure everybody feels important. Everybody has a role and they stick to that role. Well, I just want to go back to that just before that September the 11th, 2001, everybody, will live in that, you know, that, that tragic day forever. You were almost one of the casualties yourself. And yeah, it's quite a story, actually. Um, uh, Andy Murray, uh, we were all scheduled to come, you know, uh, Ace Bailey and myself, we flew together a lot. He was from Boston. I was living in Manchester. This was with LA, right at the time? With was LA. With, I was with the LA organization. And that weekend, Bill O'Flaherty was the – player uh, director of player um, development um, uh, his daughter got married in um, uh, Lake Placid so me and Ace went up there together and we drove home and I got the call that uh, uh, Andy Murray wanted me to come up on the Monday and that the team services guy was going to change the ticket and I tried to get Ace to change his but it was too expensive on their budget for him to change their tickets. So we had a, cause Andy wanted a coach's dinner before training camp started on the Tuesday. Mm -hmm. So obviously I went up there on the Monday um, and the, the incident September 11th happened on the Tuesday. Problem is I didn't tell my kids that I was going up on the Monday that I changed my ticket and they ran out of school in St. Catharines when they started seeing the, the Twin Towers and, and that. And like, I still get goosebumps when I tell that story because they went right home and phoned my wife and uh, uh, they were all bawling. And when she was phoning me about it, I was bawling. And, uh, you know, my, my two good friends, Mark Bavis and Ace Bailey died in that. And, uh, um, you know, but I'll ever be grateful for Andy Murray to have a coach's dinner, which is why every, training camp I make sure the night before I have all the assistants 
and everybody over to the house or we go to a restaurant and have a coach's dinner. What do you think makes a good coach these days in the NHL? Communication. I think we all know the same things. Everybody's talking about the Barry Trotz thing. Everybody uh, teaches the same stuff. It's uh, uh, getting them to buy in to it and getting them to sort of throw their egos away a little bit to play the way you have to play to win. Um, so, I mean, uh, uh, we all know that the X's and O's. I mean, uh, it's that's pretty – there's not much difference in anybody yeah. there. Somebody might have a different neutral zone um, than you, but, you know, for the most part, we all know and teach the same stuff. But it's it's how you deal with players, how you handle uh, the communication. I have a firm belief that there's 23 different players in the NHL on your team. You have 23 different personalities. You have to get to know each personality and make it work for you against them. In other words, if, uh, if a guy is playing crappy and you yell at him, sometimes he goes right into a shell and he can't do anything. So you got to find out what makes him work. Like Mike Green, for example, was a great example. I, one night I yelled at him. I came right down the bench and yelled at him. He was done. So I knew that the, the following time that he was having a rough game, I'd go up to him, whisper in his ear, Mike, I really need you today. Come on, buddy. Give him a pat on the back. And he was fine after that, and he played well. So some guys need a kick in the butt. Some guys need a pat on the back. Some guys need fining. Some guys lose ice time. I mean, you it's my job to find out what makes them be the best that they can be and use that against them. Now, did you, from your past experiences and the way you were handled being brought up, did you use some of that to say, you know, that was maybe, in your view, the wrong way to do things. Like, I was put in a, a position to, to not succeed. I was almost put in a position where I had to prove myself, but, it, but failure was probably more going to be along the lines of what's going to happen. But this way, like, you look at a young guy today, he comes up and he immediately plays with good players, and he gets mm -hmm. an opportunity. Is that, would you use that as your philosophy as well? Yeah, I mean, now, I mean, uh, Rick said it earlier, you, you bring up guys for the position. If you've got a fourth, you need a fourth line center. Yeah, you got to bring up a fourth line center that's accustomed to that a penalty killer. If you need a score, you bring up the best score. Yeah, you know, same thing on defense. Um, whether it's a shutdown guy or an offensive guy, I mean, so you you do that to to the position. But I mean, uh, I would immediately when I'm bringing up the the young guy coming in, I would put him. Uh, and play him. And if you made a mistake, I'd say, don't worry about it. Uh, let's get going. Let's keep going. You know, I mean, you might not play the last five minutes of the game if it's a 2-2 mm -hmm. game in an important battle. But I wanted to put him in important situations for a couple reasons. One, to, to give him confidence. And two, to see if he could do it. Like, mm -hmm. I remember calling yeah. up this one guy who, who sat out in Vancouver this year. He wasn't playing in the playoffs, but he signed by him. His name's Tyler Gravak. And uh, I put him on um, against Winnipeg in the playoffs on a face-off in our zone. And he looked at me and he says, what are you doing putting me out in our zone? I'm no good uh, in our zone. And I said, you win the face-off and get your butt back out here. Back here. And, uh, but, I mean, I couldn't believe that he didn't think that he was good enough to play in that situation. So, you know, I mean, you got to do those things. He says to me, he says, you want to go see the dailies? And I didn't know what they were, but I guess what they are is what they showed, uh, what they shot that day. And the, the um, director and Paul Newman would watch them in the evening. And I said, yes, yeah, so I'd love to do that. So me and Dave Hansen 
and George Roy Hill and Paul Newman went and watched the dailies. And uh, uh, I remember distinctly, Paul Newman, we, he was sat in the front row, obviously, and we were behind yeah. him. He turned around and he said, you know what? I just made a movie for the money called Judge Roy Bean. And it wasn't very good. But he says, this movie is going to be great. It's going to be hilarious. And I said, really? And yeah. And he said, yes, it is. So he knew he knew his stuff. You know, I mean, it would because the movies stood the test of time and still in the top five sports movies of all time. I think if you ask anybody. Well, uh, how realistic, now we spoke to David, anybody, but how realistic was that towards some of the play? And again, you're a smaller guy playing in that league. You would see some of those uh, assassins, you know, skating around the ice. How oh, yeah. Well, I'll tell you how close it was. We played, there was a team in the league called the Boast Jaros, okay? Now, let alone the bus trip, but we played them one night, and we had to go from Johnstown to Cape Cod, which was 16 hours in a storm. And then in that, we got on the bus and went to Beauce, uh, which is in Quebec, and it was a 13-hour drive. And they were sort of like undefeated at home. And yeah. we're playing there, and they've got um, – they, they had all the penalty minute leaders like you saw coming out of the gate <laughs> when Paul Newman is there. And they had this one guy, and Rick probably knows of him, Wally Weir, okay? Oh, yeah. And, yeah, I know that, and Wally Weir wore a toque on the ice. And if you knocked the toque off, you had to fight him. And so needless to say, he had a lot of room out there. And I remember we won the game and we skated backwards to the, to the, um, uh, to the exit because we were afraid they were all going to jump us. <laughs> I mean, there was an awful lot of uh, Johnstown Jet stories, but I mean, th there was – like this was coming on the heels of Johnstown winning it a couple of years ago, which the movie was, was based on, yes. on the toughness. And we still had all the Carlson's and Dave Hansen and every other tough guy in the world. But uh, uh, I was just a poor guy coming out of Toronto that played on a great team. And now I'm into this and it was pretty nutso. Squid, keeping with our theme covering all hockey, we have a couple of guests today. One in particular you may be familiar with, and I'm referring to your son, Justin, who's joined by another longtime pro, Jesse Schultz. Hey, boys, give us one of your funniest stories from the league that you found kind of humorous. Um, I'd probably say I have two from my first year. Um, the one is, um, it was, so that was probably 2010, 11-ish, um, when uh, like Clemenson and I think Theodore were in Florida. And they both got hurt the same game. So both of our goalies got called up. Um, and so we had practice the next day. And we're like looking around the room. We're like, hmm, hey, this is – and we, there was nobody else. That, and I, it was like my second month of pro hockey. And we go out for practice at our practice rink, which isn't the best place in the world. And our radio guy and our equipment manager are the two goalies out there. <laughs> it's like – what is happening right now? Like, this is pro hockey. Like, and our, our equipment guy couldn't even go down because the gear, he was wearing one of our goalies old gear and it was so big. He literally couldn't go down at all. So he just stood there like Goldberg from the mighty ducks and just got hit with pucks for an hour. <laughs> um, and I think there was another one same year. We were on the bus going to Chicago and, and uh, David game 
And we're like on the bus and we're just kind of looking around. We had a ton of injuries, call-ups. There was people sick, whatever. We're looking around. We have like five forwards and four defensemen on the bus. And we're like, ooh, like, and we play that night. And the coach is up there just going through like a Rolodex of players, calling guys that are working full-time in Chicago, actual jobs, and asking if they can come play tonight. And we ended up, I had a guy from college that worked in Chicago, hadn't played in like, six months or like had his equipment on in six months and we just pulled like four guys out of like an accounting firm and a financial thing and we ended up winning the game like three two and these guys were literally like puking in between periods whatever and it was that was like this is something I will definitely not forget it was my uh first year um first year pro I was in uh ECHL in uh with the Columbia Inferno and we were playing the PD Pride and uh we had a, only had one goalie. I don't know where our other goalie was, but we had to bring along our uh, uh, the, the ticket guy from the office. And I don't even know if he was actually a goalie or not. He just dressed as a goalie. And, and our starter that night played about a period and a half or two periods, and we were up by probably six goals, and he cramped up, and he had to leave the game. So our uh, the ticket guy had to come out and play goal for the third period. <laughs> And and they 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 got within one goal, but they were shooting it from everywhere on the ice on the other end. And guy, the centerman was shooting it off the faceoff, trying to score. But this guy was going out behind the net, trying to play the puck and stuff. And it was pretty funny. But we uh, we got out of there with a win, but we just barely did. Squid, our guest today, had a long, successful career in the NHL, playing for seven teams, played in Vancouver twice, won a cup in Anaheim. Is more known, I think it's safe to say, for his seven years in Buffalo, scoring an overtime goal with maybe the most iconic call in league history. I'm referring to none other than, of course, Brad May, or should I say May Day. Life is a minor hockey league player, born in Toronto, raised in Markham. Uh, ended up in Niagara Falls playing junior hockey. Maybe walk us through that period. You know what? I, I started, I was, well, I was 13 years old. I played house league hockey. That means that you're on the bottom of the barrel. Um, <laughs> And every, every Saturday morning between 6, 7, or 8 in the morning, I had been cut from the double-A team. And again, 13 years old. Five years later, I was a first-round pick and my first line mate in my NHL career and my debut. Um, to play professional hockey was with Rick Vive, who obviously Squid was an unbelievable um, captain for the Maple Leafs, but we played in Buffalo together. And um, I got – I was very lucky, very fortunate to, to be able to play with such great – um, great people, great mentors, um, from Rick to Colin Patterson to Pat LaFontaine and, of course, the late Dale Howarchuk, um, to name a few. Dave Anderchuk being another um, well-known Leaf. To have a good veteran class of players, yes. veterans that, that actually can impart their experiences and knowledge you know, on you as a young guy, made a huge difference um, for me. I, I had good mentors. Now, how would your first – scrimmage go like you when did it sort of reality the expectation hit you that I better deliver what these guys are looking for I mean did you go looking for it or these were you challenged immediately because face it every guy in camp would know who you are because you're a first pick well there's no question so I, I would say two things my last year junior I scored a lot of goals um, mm -hmm. like every like every player that elevates from junior yeah. or college to the National Hockey League we're all probably the best player on our team or, yep. or certainly in that class. Um, so I knew I could do that. But then again, can you do it at the next level with, with pros and men? Um, the one thing I – the other element I had is 
I love fighting. I, I, it's probably the only thing I miss about playing hockey today that I don't get to go out and tee off on somebody. Um, getting punched in the face, which I didn't get punched in the face often. I, I mean, I, I how to fight pretty well, but, um, but when you got hit and you knew you could take the other guy's best punch, um, to me, that's, it's one of the things I miss, um, that adrenaline, um, part, I, I, am I'm, I'm an excitable guy. So I knew that when I went into training camp, um, I'm actually, I had hurt my, so I'm 19 years old when I go in, Rob raised one of the toughest, he's a young guy too, but he's <laughs> him and Mike Hartman. And there's a few other guys that were at training camp. I was like, listen, I, if I'm going to make this team, I'm going to fight each and every one of them, you know, and it just so happened that my first game was against Rob's team. And um, it, it, funny, I'm, I'm in Saberland, which is maybe one of the worst hockey arenas, you know, twin, <laughs> twin plexes ever built in, in, in certainly the National Hockey League circle. But, um, and I get in a, a fist fight with Rob Ray in the second period or something, and it was a good one. And all of a sudden, everybody, they take notice, right? And um, I did well. I mean, Rob was, you know, I, I, I got, I cut him actually, um, which doesn't mean that you win or lose, but for everybody else's, the optics of it was, oh my God, this kid just cut Rob Ray in a fight. And, and it helped me. And I think in many ways, that probably gave me a much better opportunity to make the team because they were like, okay, we don't have to worry about this guy. He's going to stand up for not only himself, now what can he do for his teammates? And um, again, having good veteran players that would say, hey, they talk you off, off the shelf sometimes and say, Look, now's not the time. And, and other times I'd have, I'd have teammates say, hey, listen, so-and-so is in my grill. Um, take care of it. And as soon as I was told that, again, when you love something, you know, you go after it. And uh, it was fun. I had a good time. I really did. <laughs> I had to wait till I got to Chicago to buy that because I couldn't afford it in Canada and in Toronto. I was getting taxed too much and the price was a lot higher. So I got to Chicago and taxes were better. And it, it, that was a good story because I was probably 28 or 29 or something like that and uh, walked into the dealership. Well, first of all, I got my check and it was about 5000 every two weeks more than what I was making in Toronto. And uh, so I walked into the dealership and none of the, the salesperson came over to me. So I walked out, went to another dealership, same thing happened. So I go back to the first one a week later, I walk in, I got jeans on, t-shirt, I'm, you know, and this guy probably only a couple of years older than me, he comes up to me, he says, can I help you? And I said, yeah, I want to buy that black Mercedes right there. He goes, well, you want to lease it? I said, no, no, I want to buy it. And he says, well, it's, it's $62,000. And I said, yeah, but it won't be when we're done. And we sat down, hammered it out, paid 58, <laughs> wrote, wrote out a check and away I went. So and I still had that, that, I think that's a car that I kept the longest of any car I ever had. <laughs> See that? That's, I was going to say that's the pro man's version of Derek Sanderson's story. And he bought the Rolls Royce. <laughs> you guys remember that one when he went in and he, the guy wouldn't serve him, and he and so he bought the car. And he said, "Don't give that guy the commission," and he drove it off the lot. Hey, Derek Sanderson's a beauty, absolute beauty. He certainly is. We've had we've spoke to him a few times. He's been to a few of our charity events that we've had. So he's he's a terrific, terrific guy. Brad, getting back to your first time through the league. 
did you sense that, uh, now you, you've already answered the question, you enjoyed fighting. So were you looking for it every game that they were going to come at you? Not were you starting it, but were you aware that these guys were going to be challenging you right off the bat because of who you were or you were becoming? And also maybe some of your surprises going through the NHL when you got there, like things like, was it way better than you thought? Were these guys way better than you thought? Or was it maybe you can, you can play at this level? Um, I think, okay, so talking about the fighting first. Yes. Um, um, just coming in there. So you have a few fights, training camp, obviously, and then you go in exhibition games. And I, I remember I was, it was in Montreal. Um, I think we were losing 7-2 or whatever. We were losing big anyways. And late in the game, I ended up, we went out, it was a three-on-three situation. Obviously, guys were all in the penalty box. And three-on-three, yeah. and, three, and our coach sent myself, um, Gord Donnelly and um, Brad Miller. And Brad Miller was a six foot five defenseman, tough guy. Mm-hmm. And the Montreal Canadiens had Shane Corson, Mario Roberge, and Todd Ewan. And um, anyways, so I don't get to choose, right? I'm the 19 year old kid. So, <laughs> so Gord Donnelly's being the Quebec Nordique player and, you know, playing against Montreal, he, he already had his guy. So I, I, I want to say he fought, Ewan, if I'm not mistaken, whatever. And then Brad Miller, he's the older guy coming out of the Rochester, a couple years older than I am. He, he, he chooses Roberge or whoever he fights. So now, by default, I, I, I guess I'm going to fight Shane Corson. Well, Shane, Shane played in the same junior um, organization I did for the same coach, Bill LaForge. So for the last three years, when I was playing junior hockey, I used to use Corson sticks. Right, we only had one one pattern in our locker, left-handed curve, and it was a Corson pattern, Louisville. And um, anyway, so I have all these thoughts in my head. Now it's a face-off outside the blue line. Everybody in the building, except for Brad, knows that the moment the puck drops, there's going to be three fights. <laughs> the only reason why I say that, I knew I was going to fight, but I was I had to be center. I had to play center, you know, to start that shift. <laughs> which is so stupid. So I learned a valuable lesson early on. When you're in that situation, it doesn't matter if nobody cares if you win the face-off or lose the face-off. <laughs> I, I have my bottom hand turned over like I'm going to snap it back to my defenseman who's already in a fight, right? Like it was completely idiotic. But that's, that's what happens when you're young. I end up I, I had, I getting a great fight with Shane. We go up and down the ice. They break up the other fights first. And when I fought course... Um, I think that spread, right? Like the, the holy, you know, this young kid comes in the league, he fights Shane Cor- Cause in my estimation for me, anyways, um, I had a lot of tough guys I fought and Shane course in that fight in, in particular is one of the hardest ones and most intimidating ones. But one of the ones that I did really well at as well. So I got on a little bit of a roll, um, but it's easy to get on a roll when I had two big brothers. I had Rob Ray and I had Gunnelly. And um, not, to, not to mention other guys. Yeah. Um, when I didn't have to go into certain cities and face the guy who was on the roll, um, the toughest on the ice, you know, on, that, on the other team, where I kind of fall in where sometimes I get number three and, or number two or whatever. But if I'm going to fight number three on every team, I'm not going to lose. Yeah. Or certainly not very often. And um, and that's kind of how I got sheltered, brought into league. So maybe I wouldn't love fighting as much if I got the <laughs> Buffalo. I was the only one, and I yeah. took beat tonight, right? Um, 
I, th- I think that was a big thing is I had, I had great teammates that t- alleviated a lot of that pressure as for playing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? I think you're always afraid to think that like, am I worthy? Am I, am I good enough to be here? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what practice is about. I, I, I'm sure I'm one of those guys. I didn't really enjoy practice because you'd just rather go and put scrimmage and play, yeah. but all the details that, you know, you, you, all that work ethic and all the, the, the attention to those details pay off when you actually get into a game and you follow the, the, the pregame scouting and all these other things that, that, that happen. If you're not aware and if you're not really a student of the game, then chances are you're going to be overwhelmed in the moment. But when you, when you do all your preparation prior to, um, when you show up and write the test, you should be good. You should be fine. And I think, I think, I had that because I had good teammates to help me get there. No doubt about it. Um, was I fat? Oh my God, I can skate with these guys. I couldn't hit the net as well as some of them. And Vibe and I worked on that too. Turn the bottom hand over Brad, far post, over the pad, one foot off the ice, short side high. Like I didn't have really a, a game plan to score or shoot. And, and that's what you learn from these, these great pros. And watching the Stanley Cup last night, I said to my wife when we were watching, I'm like, it's unbelievable how fast they are, but it's unbelievable how precise. And all these passes, cross ice, you know, D to D, up the wall, in the middle, these passes are crisp. They're tape to tape. Very often or very seldom did you see guys pulling pucks out of their feet. My line mates had to figure out how to pull pucks out of their feet. I I thought they did that to guys on purpose when they didn't want them to get points. Let's go to the first round of the 93 playoffs. And now you score an overtime goal against the Boston Bruins. And this goal has made a, it's given you, it's taken a life of its own. Uh, it's still talked about today. It's probably looked at today. You, I'm sure a day doesn't go by and today's no exception that somebody doesn't bring this up to you, Brad. Just... When did you find out or feel that this thing really took this whole other meaning to it than just you scoring this overtime goal, which was a big thing, by the way? Well, um, the night we won, uh, it's funny. People are saying, hey, what was that? Was that an overtime game seven to win the Stanley Cup? I'm like, no, no, it was in the first <laughs> round. It was, that, it was the fourth game, and it was the first time the Sabres had gotten out of the first round of the playoffs. Now, back in the old system, right, the Adams division, you had the Boston Bruins, you had the Montreal Canadiens, and then you had three other teams. You had Buffalo. Yeah. And I say that, respect, like, yeah. you had Buffalo, Hartford, and the Quebec Nordiques. And um, Quebec was a really good team for, for a period of time there in the 80s as well. So all of a sudden, Buffalo's had, no matter who and how well they played all season, or at times, they knew they were facing one of those teams. And um, it, it, anyway, so in 93, we, we, we sweep the Bruins in overtime, um, I score this goal. It was awesome. Uh, it was so fun celebrating with your teammates and, and everything. And I came out, well, I never heard the call. So you can have an image and then you can have the, the, the sound bite that goes along with the image describing it or, or illustrating what happened. And you have some sportscasters that do a you know remarkable job with it and some are, are, are just average. Let's call it that. Mm-hmm. Rick Jenneret's one of the best, and he's of one course. of the most people. And when he does this, well, I don't hear it until tomorrow, right? Because it's 11.30 at night. Like, we're racing to go out and have some fun after we win. And I didn't even know because 
the actual TV guys in Buffalo, um, they didn't. Rick Jennerette did radio at the time, so they signed. It wasn't even a simulcast. They took Rick Jennerette's radio call and matched it to the image that you saw on TV. Mm-hmm. Imagine, right? It didn't. It, no people in Buffalo are like, "Oh my God, I remember even when called Mayday Mayday." When I was watching, I'm like, "You know what? You're." We, we kind of forget what exactly happened because mm-hmm. there's not a chance in the world anybody watching TV was listening to a radio and heard the two calls simultaneously, right? It's kind of strange. So anyways, that's how good Rick Jenner Ed is because his call was absolutely by the moment, by the frame, was just like iconic and I am so proud and it's great. And we're tied in the hip. I, I will never be in the Hall of Fame, which is fine. But I, but my name and that call went in when Rick Jenneret was inducted in the Hockey Hall of Fame. There was a very special moment that people probably aren't aware that he did for you that I think speaks to a little bit, a very good show of class. And you know, yeah, with your thousandth game. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, as soon as you, like I, as soon as you start bringing this stuff up, I, for, I, I'm not so sure Ron Wilson was, was, as lovable and, and, and understood and the players didn't enjoy Ron as coach. That's true. That, that's a hundred percent true. I don't know if his personality really was reflected on, on, on the way he was. Right. So as a coach and as a, who's making decisions on who's playing and not playing and you know what, we're all emotional and maybe we were, we, we, we over overdo it and we misplace our anger and our frustrations on the wrong people. I'd say that Ron Wilson took uh, here's and in saying that because I'll, my teammates might watch this and they'll say, Brad, you're an asshole because you didn't, you know, you didn't say it. Listen, not everybody liked Ron Wilson. That's a, that's a truth. But that night um, or the game, I was skating in Ottawa. It was about three weeks, maybe a month prior to playing my thousandth game in the NHL for the Toronto Maple Leafs in my hometown, call it, um, Ron took me aside and he said, listen, you have 20 – I'm making it up because I don't know exact date the numbers. Yeah, but he goes, that's fine. You have, you have 22 games to go in the season. You have to play in 17 of them to, to get to 1,000. If I sit you out today or too early, what would happen if you got injured? Then you wouldn't make the, 20, you know, the 17 games. So here's – if it's up to, up to you, but if, if, what, do you, what do you think about playing your 1,000th game against the Buffalo Sabres – the second last game of the year on a Saturday night in Toronto where your parents can come to the ACC and want, you know, be there with you um, against the team you started your career with. I'd be like, I said, that, that's unreal. He goes, well, the only way we can do that, I have to sit you out four times or five times to actually make that date happen. But you got to play in the other, other games. So as we get closer to, the, to the, that night, I think it was April 5th or whatever it was, Closer we get to it, you're not going to play because. So the night before, he he told me like I got sat out in New Jersey the night before the, the game in Toronto. And anyways, Ron Wilson had the foresight and thought of that. Well, you know what? You can't be the biggest hole in the world if you if you actually have, are that thoughtful and are thinking that far ahead. And uh, he gave, he set me up to have one of the greatest experiences of my career selfishly. Um, to be able to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs, thousand games. Um, Red Red Kelly gave me the thousand game stick. He's the first Toronto Maple Leaf to ever play a thousand games. I was the twenty first. I mean, I, I Toronto Maple Leafs have been around for over a hundred years. I was the twenty first guy to play thousand games. 
with a, with the uniform on. And um, that wouldn't have happened at the ACC on that night for my parents and my family if it wasn't for Ron Wilson. So I, so I really appreciate that. Well, here I've got two things to say about that. One, number one, again, same as we talked about the fine line between play, the players placing themselves and not placing themselves, it's being left to the league. This same note with a guy like Ron Wilson, and then you have what Jason Spezza had done to him by Mike Babcock in Toronto, his first game back in Toronto, a seasoned veteran, and embarrassing him like that in front of his family, his hometown, and the guy came back with his flash to play, and then you play him on the road the next night. I mean, there is a fine line, and, and I think decisions like this, like we discussed before with the fighting and what's gone on with this, are the difference between teams winning and losing in National Hockey League. I don't care what area you're playing, whether it's the 30s, 60s, or 90s, or 2000, it does have an impact. Today's guest is a longtime NHLer who, after a strong junior career with the Calgary Centennials, was noted for his eight years with the Buffalo Sabres, a two-time 50-goal scorer, a captain, a member of the Sabres Hall of Fame, along with the retirement of his number, also represented Canada a couple of times in Canada Cups. Please welcome Danny Gare. So I, I know from, and you may have a different spin on this, but I heard the real story from Terry Martin and Derek <laughs> Smith, two-year-old buddies, <laughs> So how did you yeah. get the nickname Tickets? Well, those are a couple old two roommates of mine, yeah. Derek and, and, and Terry, as you know, played uh, with the Leafs with you. And um, actually, it was before that, Rick, um, when I first came here to Buffalo, it's like any place at the time, especially, you know, teams that were in our division, Boston, Toronto, Montreal, hard to get a ticket, you know, <laughs> hard to get a ticket. So... We were rookie. I was a rookie, and I lived actually with uh, Larry Carrier. We lived in a, an apartment complex, and Lee Fogelin, uh, the number one pick that year, and Morris Titanic, the ship, was with us. And um, one of the things we did as being young guys, single guys, you know, after you win a few games, you'd go out and have a few pops and meet a few uh, pretty young girls, and uh, they'd always be asking for tickets. So I would give them and say, yeah, I'll get you tickets, no problem. But back then, you only got two tickets, right? And the no-no was going to the veterans and asking them for their tickets. Are you nuts? Are you crazy? So what happened was a couple times, I guess, there were, you know, four or five young girls at the ticket uh, box office, and Punch Imlac had heard about it. And uh, he wasn't too happy about me. And they had to give him tickets because they said, Danny Gare left them for me. And I didn't. I, you know, I forgot about it or whatever. So what happened was Larry Carrier uh, got called up in November into his office. And um, I don't know if he ever played for Punch, but he, he always had to wear a suit and tie to go up to the office. And uh, we always left one there in the trainer's room. So Larry goes up. He thought he was getting traded. <laughs> I was going over to Chef's with Hoagie and, and, and Morris, and I said, geez, I hope you everything okay. We'll be at Chef's after, because we hung out. We were single. And so uh, he goes up, and I guess Punch says to him, you know, he was really nervous. You know, Larry used to sweat from upstairs, downstairs, everywhere. And, uh, and he goes, hey, you tell that gear. This is Punch telling Larry Carrier. You tell that gear to quit giving away all those damn tickets to those girls. And he said, by the way, they're pretty good looking too, he said. Like this. <laughs> so yeah, Larry comes over to Chefs and you know, he was like, he starts pointing, he goes, you, you, you. I go, what? Talk to are you okay? Are you still here? He goes, you, you. 
I'm going to call you tickets. He goes, I'm going to call you tickets. I said, what are you talking about? And then he tells the story. So that was tickets there. And um, the other one I tell is when I went back to Vancouver, when I made the, 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 the team that summer prior, when I was drafted, I told all my buddies, uh, if I ever make the Sabres, they could come down. I'll get them tickets for the first game in Vancouver. Well, guess what? Eight busloads came, and it cost me $3,482 for tickets. So tickets here, tickets there. Now, was there a little intimidation on your part meeting Punch for the first time, especially, I mean, as a kid oh. growing up, you know his, his resume coming from the 60s with the Maple Leafs, and here you are meeting this legendary coach, GM, walking into yeah. your house and sitting talking to you. How did that conversation all go? Or were you just sort of in a trance? You know, I, it was, it was um, an honor, really, to be um, – he actually, what we did, we met in Cary. I flew okay. out from Nelson and met him at the airport because he wanted to get on a plane and go right back. Um, and Punch was just great. He was, you know, those years, Punch was uh, – he came to Nelson a year later, and, and they had a Danny Gare day or something. He flew out with his wife, Dodo, and he loved it there. But I've always, you know – Punch was we we got along in the early years. Towards the end, obviously, it got a little trying. But um, no, he was great. I mean, I remember signing the contract, and he and he gives me a signing bonus, which was 150 grand back then. It was a lot a of lot money in 1974. And I, he says, "I wish you could buy a beer, but it's Sunday." He says, "The reason I give you this check," <laughs> he said. You, you got to go right back to Nelson because your parents don't want to see that check. And I said, thanks, Bunch. You know, he was, he was great. He was, uh, it was awesome. Um, and all his accomplishment, accomplishments prior to that, I mean, I used to watch him. Toronto Maple Leafs were one of my favorite teams growing up, watching Hockey Night in Canada, Dickie Duff, you know, Davey Keon, little guys that I liked. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. How was that whole year for you as a rookie coming in? And, I mean, and secondly, when you were coming in, what kind of expectations were putting you by management if any at all as a player you know um you just don't know and i think rick can relate to this you know you 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 work to get to, to that position obviously to be drafted but then you go to your first training camp and you know i remember you know looking at gilbert perot and rick martin and Jim Schoen. i wanted to ask him for their autographs i mean that's that's the type of guys that it's it's really awesome. I mean, it's it's kind of intimidating, I guess, is what I'm saying. But you have to, you know, buckle up the chin strap, as they say, and, and go do what you're supposed to do. And my kind of my role was I felt that I I could score, you know, like Rick. I mean, the same thing. And you have to do what got you there. And um, and I fight a few times here and there, but uh, I was put on a, on a line with Luce and Ramsey, and uh, that that just clicked. I mean. They played with Larry Mickey the year before, and I remember going to training camp, and Larry Mickey was there at rookie camp with 100 guys trying to get his job and keep his job. Um, and, you know, we went at it a bit, but, um, you know, it's like anything else when they cut you down and we moved. Actually, we had our camps back in St. Catharines then, and we moved to – they counted 26 players back to Buffalo, and I remember – uh, going to the Statler Hilton there, my roommate was Peter McNabb, and Peter was, you know, he was a one second year player for them. And, you know, we're talking a lot with him and uh, tried to Bill Height, I knew from Western Canada a little bit. I played against him, and I didn't know a lot of guys, you know. Um, so you try to take what you can. And Larry Mickey was there too, and he was great. 
you know, he said, you know, when I finally made the team and, and kind of took his spot, I sat next to him and um, he would help me look, shoot high on this guy, you know, watch out for Plager. He'll come across, you know, and try to hip check you, stuff like that. And then it was the first game that really, that really kind of how it went was we went out against the Boston Bruins and we were checking line and line up against uh, Cashman, Esposito and Hodge and Orr and Badney on defense and cheesing and that. And the puck came back to Shoney, went around in there, and Shoney took, took a shot from the blue line rammer. Craig Ramsey kind of whipped on it, and I got the rebound and put it in. And at uh, 18 seconds, yeah. it's like the fastest goal as a rookie. That's correct. And it was, it was unbelievable. It was like surreal is my point. And I go on the bench, and I'm sitting here with a puck because Craig gave it to me, and I'm going, geez, maybe I belong. You know, you just yeah. don't know. And then we had a great year, and – and and Rick, you can you can understand the getting the confidence. I think is what it was, and knowing that you can, you know, you can help the team, and, and you can also make a difference. So that was that was a big big year for me going to the finals, and uh, with the team just ran a little short. Well, I, I'll I'll tell you a good one. Um, the night I scored my first fiftieth, we played the Leafs, and um, my second year, and I, I remember. Richard Martin had 49 goals and, you know, Rico was, you know, I'm on, I'm on a checking line with Luce and Ramsey and I had 47, but it was like, you know, everything played the Leafs the last game. Um, I think Gordy McRae was in the net. Not, I think it was Palmateer and that was hurt or something, but anyways. So right before the game in, in the dressing room, my old crafty veteran, as I call him, um, uh, Freddie Stanfield comes up to me and before we're going, about a half hour before we're on the ice, he goes, hey, come here. We're in the bathroom. He goes, you know, you're at 47. He said, you know, you, you can, you may not get there again. He says, you might think about trying to get 50 tonight, you know, because really the, the the season we'd already set places and the standings and all that. But I, I didn't even like, you know, it never even came to my mind because I was just Rico, everybody, you know, and, I, and Rico deserved it. Don't get me wrong. Um, he was a great, great goal scorer. Um, so we line up, and because uh, we always check the top line, Lucy Ramsey. So I line up. Uh, we line up Sittler, Lanny McDonald, and guess who's on my side? Tiger Williams. So Tiger, who I played against many years in the, in the Western Canada League, and we fought back then. He was in Speedy, Speedy Creek, and I was in Calgary. And he goes, Gare. Yeah. You ain't even going to get a sniff tonight. You're getting nothing. You're getting zip all these going like this tonight. <laughs> and you know Tiger, right? So I'm going, why don't you just go yourself, you know? And I, <laughs> I got mad. I got pissed off. And, and it was just the first period, neither one of us scored a goal. But in the second, I scored one to make it 48, going in the third period. Uh, power play came and Floyd Smith had put me on the power play because I had 48 because I only had six that year, six power play goals. And I get one and then we're tied with about 15 minutes to go in the third period. And and then we get another power play and Rico uh, took a shot from the point. I, I got the rebound and put it over. I think it was McCray was in the net and I got 50 and poor Rico he didn't. He played the rest of the game and never got never oh, got no. it, which is very unfortunate. But I didn't. I didn't play squid. I didn't play the rest of the game. But when I got the puck, I go by the bench. I said, "Hey, Tiger, 
<laughs> asshole. And he starts screaming at me. He tried to jump on the bench and win. That <laughs> oh, was funny. Rick, I'm going to tell you one that I remember in Detroit. I was in Detroit. Yelling for a playoff spot. And that's when Brad Park came and took over the coaching. I don't know if you remember the big brawl we had with Probert and McGill. Remember? Yeah. I'm in front of that, and I'm with you, and we went at it. And then it just kind of slid away, and Lane Lambert and someone else uh, got another fight, and then it got crazy, and then the bench cleared. Probert and McGill were going at it near your bench, or near the glass in Maple Leaf Gardens, and they were going hard. And Bobby McGill was a tough – he was a tough player. He, I mean, he stood up and, and did what he had to do, and Proby was still a young kid trying to earn his stripes. So it was just, it was, I was watching it. We and you were watching. We were both holding on to each other. And I'll never forget this because our fight was over. They'd broken some. And boy, they were going back and forth, back and forth. And then you know what Probert did? He just had enough. He went like this. He headbutted McGill and McGill's legs fell out and down they went. I don't know if you remember that, but I'll yeah. never forget. It was, he hit him as hard as he could with his head, like, and down. I've never seen a headbutt like that. No. Was that the game that but, he challenged, that Probert challenged the lead bench and McGill jumped off and went after him? That's the, that was, that was your brawl. That was yeah. the brawl between that was you the guys. Brawl. I, I was at that game, yeah. I remember that.